Hey everybody, my name is Justin Murphy and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast, over and out. I want to start by giving everyone here a little bit of an introduction. I feel like I should provide some context for what's going on here. So basically, first of all, I want to thank everyone for coming out. Uh, there's a ton of people registered for this meeting. So it looks like there's a lot of interest in Bataille. Uh, so that's really exciting to see. And thanks for your interest. I want to start with a bit of an introduction because there's a bit of, there's a bit of background context that I think will make this all a little bit easier to understand or, or it'll help everyone kind of appreciate what we're trying to do here. So, uh, first of all, as you can tell, I am joined by my friend and colleague, uh, Nina Power, uh, another person who is now uh, kind of on the true outside of academia. Uh, <laughs> Nina, <laughs> Nina, who many of you will know, is a uh, British philosopher who's written about and taught continental philosophy for many, many years now. And today we're going to be talking about the French philosopher Georges Bataille and Nina's here in part because Nina in continental philosophy is is certainly my superior. I was trained primarily as a uh, quantitative political scientist, really. And I I mean, I do have some peer-reviewed academic theory articles and all of that, but uh, Nina's superiority in the continental philosophy area is one of the reasons that I asked her to join me in this particular project. Uh, although I do also want to remind everyone at the outset that many of Bataille's most crucial claims are actually social scientific in nature. So something to keep in mind. And what I want to just talk about briefly before I let Nina take the mic for uh, a good while is, is that uh, just why are we even talking about Bataille? And I would say that the, the key bit of context here I want to let you all kind of understand or know about is that I just recently finished what was pretty much my first serious attempt at an online course with uh, the Heidegger scholar, uh, Johannes Niederhauser. Uh, he's a he's a recent PhD from Warwick, and honestly, it was just amazing. It was really great. It pretty much far uh, exceeded our expectations. Immediately build another course, and uh, Nina and I have both we both have a kind of abiding interest in Bataille. And Nina recently quit her job as a professor only after I did. So this just seemed like the obvious choice uh, for a second course in in my little catalog of courses that I'm building up. So this is kind of the opening salvo of, of this experiment I'm doing with Nina. The, Nina and I have officially agreed that we are going to be opening up an online course on George Bataille. Uh, so, and it's going to start sometime in July. We haven't worked out many of the details. We're going to figure that out between now and then. And in large part, hopefully, from the feedback that we get from people like you all, the types of questions that people want to ask, the types of topics that people are most interested in and enthusiastic about talking about, we're going to take that as information to kind of structure the course that we're going to launch in July. So for the moment, all the details are totally open. We're not, we haven't hammered them out. So I'm, I'm incredibly excited. And this is pretty much just our first public event in the run up to that course. And I would say the, the purpose of today's talk is for us to 
pretty much just lay out our primary interests individually uh, and, and our hypotheses at the outset of, of developing this course. Because Nina and I have talked a little bit about Bataille here and there. We recorded a couple of podcasts and I've spent some time with Nina. So I know a little bit about her perspective, but I don't really know very much about what Nina really thinks about Bataille. And I don't think she knows very much about my understanding or relationship to Bataille. So this is going to be she and I learning about each other as much as anything else. And um, yeah, so we're going to kind of use this as a jumping off point for developing the syllabus. That's going to be our our online course in July. And so we're really keen to hear all of your questions and comments. Please don't be shy. I will be throughout this meeting, throughout this event, I will be paying close attention to the uh, comments and questions in the Zoom meeting. I'm actually not paying attention to the YouTube chat for what it's worth. You're all free to talk amongst yourselves, but uh, just to keep things focused, I'm looking at people who registered for the Zoom meeting. So please do ask questions. Uh, please do let us know your comments. We're, we're seriously quite interested in them. And it, your your input could very well be formative for how the course uh, develops. So the game plan for today is Nina is going to talk for about 30 minutes, uh, just basically presenting her kind of introductory perspective on Bataille, uh, what she thinks are the kind of key ideas or hypotheses, or at least whatever she feels like focusing on for today. And um, when she's done talking after about 30 minutes, we will address a few questions that might have arisen in the time that she was talking. So like I said, I'll be paying close attention and making notes of questions. And as soon as she's done, we'll address some of the questions raised then. And then I'm going to talk for about 30 minutes also. And same, and we'll do the same thing. I'll be paying attention to the questions. And when I'm done talking, we'll have some time to address a few of those questions. So it uh, should last about one and a half hours total. I would say two hours at the absolute max. And so that's the game plan. Nina, you good to go? I think... I, I'd like to invite you to speak now. You you have the mic. Okay, cool. Thank you, Justin, for that very enthusiastic and uh, organized introduction. So, I mean, here we are in this, uh, you know, strange uh, future present in the middle of this pandemic, um, you know, various states doing various things, using this technology to, to speak. My normal mode of speaking would be from a small uh, grass hillock in a park preaching uh, to very and whoever might uh, come along uh, and in that respect I would say that uh, perhaps my approach to Bataille has something of this kind of uh, poetic uh, in the hard sense uh, <laughs> this dimension of uh, I guess the kind of experiential um, so I'm very interested in Bataille not least because he's quite hard to categorize um, as in terms of both his writing and his kind of approach um, to existence and to thought um, and the way in which he's kind of not really reducible to particular uh, schools, um, although he has kind of, you know, overlaps with certain uh, certain schools and certain modes of thinking. Um, so, yeah, this kind of brief introduction, I made some uh, some notes um, and they kind of touch on some of the things, some of the kind of concepts or ideas that I'm interested in, Bataille. But I want to say, of course, there's there are so many things I'm not going to be able to cover that, that are so interesting about Bataille. Um, in particular, Asifal and the secret society um, and the kind of two-sided nature of his relation to secrecy and also to the public in the form of journals um, and kind of public intervention. Um, also his... Uh, relation to the College of Sociology and his relation to other great thinkers at this time. Um, and also there's a lot that could be said about his relation to religion, to Catholicism, to 
in, in his early life, uh, also to um, the surrealists, to psychoanalysis, his influence on Lacan, and, and there's there's a, there's so many things, and it, it's it's kind of worth maybe looking at uh, the biography of Bataille, which uh, by uh, Michel Sira, which is translated. Um, so, um, not a particularly fine quality edition <laughs> in the paperback, but there's an interesting take on on Bataille, um, which maybe slightly reduces Bataille's biography to a kind of a meaningful life, like trying to find coherence uh, in his his life, which is a kind of open question for everyone in a way. How much you can make of uh, your own life and the kind of various vicissitudes and directions and uh, impossibilities that it might uh, involve. Um, but so, yeah, so I'm just going to read my, my notes written here, you know, in this moment of the, of the pandemic. So I think this is a, an excellent time to turn Atai. So he, bought, he was born and died in France, 1897-1962. The global pandemic and the various states' reactions to it raises certain persistently underlying questions for humanity ones that are generally obscured by the modern, hygienic, utilitarian and homogenous world. As Johannes Niederhauser, who Justin mentioned earlier, puts it in a recent essay, It's Time to Think, which draws on Heidegger and Nietzsche, quote, the question of being, which we are forgetting, is a reminder of who we have always been. But the will to will blinds our eyes and hearts for this deep memory and inner ring bringing into the inner of our hearts who we are. The will to will wills us to be enslaved by debt, numb from experience and death machines. The will to will wills us to kill time rather than allowing for the wonders of boredom to disclose to us who we are. So I think in this question of boredom that Johannes mentions um, is also a kind of key idea for Bataille and for Heidegger, who will talk about profound boredom um, for those of us who have, in a sense, the luxury to be bored and maybe to remember the boredom of our of our childhoods, um, there is something kind of very uh, profound, perhaps, in this moment. Um, Johannes will talk about uh, a return to almost a kind of uh, leisure, uh, but in a kind of uh, very deep sort of philosophical uh, sense. So I would say this plague forces a kind of confrontation with time I should have been having all along with our thought and most specifically with death and risk which are you know key ideas for Bataille certainly death is those aspects of existence covered over by a culture concerned to hide death or repress it and at the same time to kind of fetishize say and a kind of mediated existence promote this mediated existence a life lived online for instance the life that we're living now uh, a life lived via pacifying visual images, the kind of tyranny of, of Netflix, uh, for example. A world in which we are not supposed, on pain of uh, punishment now, to have direct encounters, to have kind of erotic liaisons, to hug people, to kiss them, to stick your tongue in their ear. Uh, all of these things are now <laughs> prohibited, if not seriously frowned upon. Uh, or punished by neighbours who might complain about you. Um, so this the kind of absence of restriction on direct encounters, you know, perhaps unthinkable several months ago, is now our kind of new 
highly mediated, even more mediated uh, reality. Um, you know, and we are we are kind of kept from those that we love or desire. At the same time, we live in a world of statistics, of experts, of polls, of graphs that caution us against excess, um, even as we are sort of encouraged into sort of low level depression and numbness uh, that Anna's mentioned. The poetic, the erotic, the impossible are seemingly absent from this world that we're in. The question of the outside and of the sun has at the same time become kind of central, really, really problematic, really a big uh, question about who can go outside. I, I recently spent six weeks in Madrid in more or less house arrest because there was no uh, permission other than briefly to go and buy something in the shop. And this kind of lack of absence, uh, a lack of relation to the outside was, was seriously brutal. It's very interesting how difficult it was. And so this question of the sun is, is one of the things that I'm very interested in uh, Bataille because it touches on this question of the outside, our relation to literally nature, to the outside, to what it means to be uh, not domestic um, in a way, to be kind of, uh, you know, in contact with something uh, beyond us. Um, but also as the sun as a kind of metaphor for thought um, for, for upright thinking, for a kind of uh, classical uh, Greek thought, which I'll talk about in a minute. Also, the sun is, is an obsession for Bataille. It's, it's the apex of a kind of excess of energy. Um, and at the same time that Bataille is writing, we can think about um, Artaud, the poet who, who kind of goes to Mexico to join a sun cult briefly. Um, and there's a real obsession and interest with the, the kind of this kind of uh, excess of the sun at this point, this kind of, you know, object of, of worship and various sacrificial cults historically, um, but of its kind of intense and unbearable power. Um, and the sun will become the basis for a kind of different way of thinking about economy and expenditure in Bataille. I'm not going to go into too much of the economy aspect of Bataille. I think that's something that Dustin may talk about. Um, Bataille says we are basically nothing but an effect of the sun and describes the way in which for ancient Mexico, the sun was the fruit of a sacrificial madness, he says. So this is not actually the sun of the classical philosophers for whom exiting the cave, of course, will induce a certain kind of madness, but it's kind of temporary madness in the name of perhaps the truth or, or the good. Um, but for Bataille, this is uh, the kind of philosopher's sun made monstrous. For Bataille, the sun is black. From it, we receive disease and passion and pain and madness and death. The sickness of being vomits a black sun of spittle, he writes. In 1927's The Pineal Eye Essay, Bataille discusses a, an eye at the summit of the skull which opens onto, quote, the incandescent sun in order to contemplate it in sinister solitude. This is not the kind of rational understanding sought by the philosophers, um, although I want to preserve the madness also in, in Plato's description. But instead, Bataille says it opens onto an immediate existence. OK, there's a kind of impossibility then of like Bataille's direct or immediate relation uh, to the sun. You know, it's not a metaphor. It's a it's really this uh, horrific thing in which we have this kind of residual pineal 
<laughs> relationship. You can also think of the pineal gland in Descartes as well as a, as a, a theoretical uh, mediator. Um, so the sun then for Bataille becomes a kind of blind spot of Western rationality. He says existence no longer resembles a neatly defined itinerary from one practical sign to another, but a sickly incandescence, a durable orgasm, he writes. And what of this question of enjoyment, desire today? We can see, I think, probably all of us, a struggle between those who desire freedom of whatever kind and those whose enjoyment comes from preventing others from being free, often in the name of death. So death, this kind of great repressed unconscious aspect of uh, modern life is also invoked constantly. You know, people are dying, they will say. Uh, and this is a reason to do or not do uh, various things. So death and the death of others, the hypothetical death or the real death of others, is today constantly being invoked on the side of safety and law. And somebody like uh, Giorgio Agamben has been, you know, very criticised by, you know, other philosophers and people on the left for his attempt to try to think through death um, in the age of the of the pandemic. Um, because he's, a, in a sense, perhaps not taking seriously the threat of death, the risk of death uh, in this uh, current plague. But this question of whether death can be rationalised in any way um, is one that links us to Bataille very closely. I think this is one of his deep and main questions, is the kind of, uh, the sort of meaninglessness of death, in a way. Um, it's kind of heterogeneous character. It kind of appears... Um, uh, from nowhere. Um, so how should we kind of approach uh, Bataille? As, as Land, a controversial thinker, put it a long time ago in his book, First for Annihilation, uh, George Bataille and Virulent Nihilism from 1992, Land writes the following, who cares what anyone thinks, knows and theorises about Bataille? The only thing to try and touch is the intense shockwave that still reaches us along with the textual embers, for as long, that is, as anything can still reach us. Where Descartes needed God to mediate his relations with his fellows, secular man is happy with his television set. We could update this to, say, internet connection. And with all the other commodified channels of pseudo-communication with which his civilization has so thoughtfully enabled him, such things are for his own protection, of course, to filter out the terrifying threat of infection. So this is Nick Land writing about Bataille in the early 90s. As Ben Noyes puts it in his critical introduction to Bataille, similarly, we cannot either reject or appropriate, appropriate Bataille. There is something that kind of resists this, uh, either a kind of um, moralistic refusal, which at the same time would then become a kind of affirmation, but also this kind of academic uh, assimilation. Uh, and uh, my friend John Appleby is a very, makes a very interesting distinction between the kind of the literary attempt to sort of uh, to recapture Bataille and make him a theorist of, of the literary, if you like, uh, yet another kind of early 20th century a poetic French writer um, and the, the so-called coming in the Bataille. Uh, Bataille, uh, truly of uh, and, and disgust and nausea uh, and excrement and all of these kinds of things. And there is a kind of struggle over Bataille's um, reception in this way, I would say. 
So in the uh, in the preface to the second edition of The Impossible, which is what I'm going to focus on here, is a 1947 collection of Bataille's that veers between kind of poetry, philosophy, prose, eroticism and violence. And probably the first thing that people might read by Bataille is something like The Story of the Eye, which would one of his early kind of erotic uh, novels published uh, under a, um, a pseudonym as some of his work uh, was because it was extremely scandalous, you know, in the kind of fusion of violence and uh, the erotic. Anyway, in this uh, collection, The Impossible, he writes the following. Only death and desire have the that oppresses, that takes one's breath away. Only the extremism of desire and of death enables one to attain the truth. And this is a very different image from the one that we're surrounded by today, this kind of attempt to rationalise death and to use it as a kind of political uh, tool. Uh, death here is on the side of the truth, um, whatever this, this means, a very complicated uh, truth. It is at extremes of experience we find ourselves in Bataille's work, both in terms of the genre of his, his writings, which is anti-systematic, anti-systemic, completely anti-Hegelian in that sense, although he draws on what Hegel would say about negation and negativity. Um, but there's an absolute refusal of a system uh, in his life or his work, we would say. As I say, uh, Bataille used multiple pseudonyms, some of them quite rude. Uh, this, in this regard, he's a little bit like uh, Kierkegaard, um, who takes on these kind of multiple persona encounters, uh, in a kind of poly pseudonymity uh, as a way of, again, resisting a kind of systemic uh, mode of thinking, but thinking through different moods, for example, in Kierkegaard. Bataille moves between essays, prose, poems and other experimental forms. His life is his work and vice versa. You could say that after he breaks with Catholicism in his youth, um, after his father's uh, kind of horrible and, and shocking death, which will kind of haunt Bataille um, for the rest of his life, um, he then sort of dedicates himself to living in the world that Nietzsche depicts, uh, a world in which God is dead and we have killed him, a world of base materialism, of will and violence and deep currents. And Bataille will go on to write about Nietzsche uh, and draw upon Nietzsche throughout his his life. But without being pinned down or reducible to any specific philosophical, aesthetic or political outlook, um, as reflected in Bataille's ambivalent and complex relations to surrealism, psychoanalysis, existentialism and politics. And Sartre will criticise um, Bataille, uh, Breton will criticise Bataille, they will often accuse him of being a kind of madman or an obsessive or in need of psychoanalysis or something like this. Um, Bataille it resists this kind of, uh, you know, easy placement and it, deliberately so. Um, he seems, by all accounts, a kind of recalcitrant uh, man, a difficult man, a poet. Uh, who, who does not love these difficult men? So Bataille is interested in, amongst other things, eroticism, the sacred, laughter, excess, limits, religion, death, and joy before death, rather than the austere meaning of mourning. He's interested in expenditure, in horror, in disgust, in sovereignty, in brothels and in the labyrinth. But above all, perhaps, there is a kind of commitment to freedom as the freedom to be truly confronted with what cannot be understood. In The Impossible, again, he writes, freedom is nothing. 
if it is not the freedom to live at the edge of limits where all comprehension breaks down. As Ben Noyes notes, if we do not read Bataille as a thinker of freedom, we do not read him at all. Bataille then is the ultimate thinker of limits, of the edge, of the abyss, but these limits not only are always on the side of horror or darkness, which is which is an impression you might get from, from Bataille or from people talking about Bataille, that, that there's a, a only a kind of uh, excessive interest in what is, you know, horrible, you know, uh, and horrific uh, and violent and, and dirty. Uh, there is that for sure, absolutely. Um, but I would say that there is rather a kind of explosive ambivalence in, in Bataille. In 1936, the labyrinth, this essay uh, that's collected in Visions of Excess, um, which is a, you know, kind of popular collection of Bataille essays. Um, he writes of, of a kind of incandescent joy, the explosive and sudden revelation of the presence of being, which is liberated each time a striking appearance is contrasted with its absence, with the human void. Laughter casts a glance, charged with the mortal violence of being into the void of life. It is interesting, I think, to know that the question today of who can laugh at what and how is a deeply contentious thing. If you look at the film The Joker, for example, this is a film that is in many ways about ordered laughter, about the people and lives that can be laughed at and who can laugh at who. Um, how laughter is regulated in a society, uh, what happens when there's a kind of excess of laughter um, that's kind of performed by the wrong uh, people. So in the film, it's fine for like this bourgeois cinematic audiences to laugh at Charlie Chaplin, but also to laugh at the Joker figure. Um, but when today's clowns laugh, their laughter is seen to be murderous and dangerous, disordered and frightening. Um, and we can see this also in relation to uh, online in, in the question of memes and in the kind of demonization of so-called incels and the recent film uh, documentary uh, TFW No GF, That Feeling When No Girlfriend uh, by Alex Lee Moyer, who is a director that Justin has interviewed. It's a very interesting documentary um, precisely because it is a sympathetic uh, and very personal portrayal of uh, some of these um, young men, these so-called incels who make memes and uh, go on internet forums um, in the way that they are kind of demonised for their particular humour. Um, but I think a lot of this is a, is a kind of worry that, that people are not getting the joke. You know, these kind of insular, very kind of fast moving communities uh, are engaging in forms of laughter, again, that kind of are very disruptive and very heterogeneous and are not comprehensible to the mainstream, deliberately so. And as, and as such, therefore, the people who are do, engaging in this kind of anonymous, anarchic humour are often kind of blamed for excesses of all kinds. So excesses of violence, of threats, of, you know, supposed uh, hatred uh, and so on. But this isn't the kind of impression you necessarily get from the film, uh, which makes it a very interesting kind of document. And I think, therefore, there's a question of laughter. So, I, you know, the sun and laughter... Um, would be my first two uh, main uh, concepts from Bataille that I would like to, to sort of, yeah, entertaining. Um, so I think, yeah, it remains to be seen um, in the plague or after the plague, what pushback there will be against this strange, in this strange climate, which we now inhabit, against a culture 
that punishes or seems to punish all but state-sanctioned laughter. And that has also seriously debased eroticism in ways that perhaps Bataille could not have imagined. So we're also living in the era of, of OnlyFans, this kind of site where you can create sort of bespoke porn, uh, a kind of Patreon meets Pornhub model where young women in particular are encouraged to, uh, uh, you know, sort of present themselves as if a kind of virtual girlfriend. I mean, it's, it's going to go horribly wrong. It already does and is. But there is a sense in which there's a sort of total debasement, um, in a, and I don't even mean that judgmentally, of, 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 the, of the body, of the image of the body, of the image of such, uh, of the, uh, you know, debasement of the relation, the possible relations between men and women, between bodies, um, and the total mediation, the total monetization of the erotic, to the extent that there is no kind of uh, erotic, um, you know, what, what is left of eros <laughs> in this age of... Uh, the total commodification of, of sex. Um, and in that sense, uh, Pierre Klosowski's book, Living Currency, and Klosowski is somebody who uh, publishes with Bataille in Asifal and is a very interesting thinker, already kind of predicts the, this kind of total circulation, the commodification of, of bodies. Uh, so bodies become living currency. Um, but this is an idea that I think we, we see in Bataille and perhaps there's a kind of resistance to it in the impossibility of Eros um, and the relation between Eros and Thanatos uh, in Bataille. Um, so what of Bataille's image of freedom? What if it remains to us today? Our world is overwhelmingly a homogenous world, we have to say, uh, at the, almost every level, uh, you know, one's personality traits are, are you know, uh, a problem for this homogenous world, uh, the flaws that we all have. Um, we could say we live in a homogenous world, even or especially at the level of experience. So can experience this kind of fundamental category for, for Bataille become something uh, redeemable um, in practice? And yet we would have to say that the heterogeneous uh, that which cannot be assimilated threatens us at all times, no, nevertheless. And this is what homogenous societies it, it attempt to seal off and protect themselves uh, from constantly, whether it be in the form of the invisible uh, uh, enemy um, of, the, of the virus or, you know, threats of all kinds, manufactured or real, um, that disrupt uh, the homogenous, smooth uh, world. Um, if we think about death, risk, infection, and so on, um, we can understand this. Um, so I'll just finish with this brief comment and, on heterogeneity. In the early 1930s, Bataille, in an essay entitled The Psychological Structure of Fascism, attempted to analyze society. Um, and this is a really important thing uh, to do at this point because, you know, obviously you have this kind of massive uh, upsurge in uh, of of, of fascism that is is becoming uh, in need of analysis, like what on earth is going on, uh, basically, how to understand and analyze this, um, this really powerful force uh, in Europe. So in this essay, Bataille opposes homogenous society, which he describes as productive society, useful society. And he says, in this part, every useless element is excluded. Um, in this part of homogenous society, Money is the calculable equivalent of different products of collective activity. Each man is worth what he produces. 
he is no more than a function. This is quite a sort of Marxist analysis in a way that Bataille engages in. The heterogeneous, on the contrary, is something other, is something incommensurate. Homogeneous reality of, is that of science, of kind of order, of, of money, of calculation, of, of measurement and exchangeability. Um, of the quantitative, we could say, uh, it's interesting to think about the, the question of the quantitative and the qualitative, uh, particularly in people like René Guénon, um, also from this, uh, around this time. Um, so the knowledge of heterogeneous reality, Bataille says, is instead to be found, quote, in the mystical thinking of primitives and in dreams, also in myth um, and so on. And we can see the way in which myth starts to become incredibly powerful in this period, right? The invocation of supposedly national myths, of rituals, of the sacred. And this is what Bataille is trying to understand. And I think this is a, the kind of still remains a key kind of question for us today. What kind of happens to the sacred today? Like, where does it reside? Where does the heterogeneous uh, reside uh, today? So the heterogeneous, Bataille says, is identical to the structure of the unconscious. In this dense essay, he tries to look at the way in which fascism and fascist leaders, so Mussolini and Hitler, immediately stand out and seem to tap into, almost hypnotically, into this heterogeneous otherness, this kind of dark energy, he calls it the force, that situates them or seems to above men. Uh, above parties and above laws. So they become this kind of sovereign uh, exemption. Um, you know, not, not a man of the people exactly, but something uh, powerful and other. So directly alongside this identification of fascism as heterogeneous, Bataille then talks about the lowest strata of society um, as, as those who provoke revulsion. For example, the untouchable caste in India and he will speak of uh, the duality of sacred forms being re revealed in precisely this kind of stratification um, and the behaviour and the way in which some a group like the Untouchables, because of the work they do dealing with, um, you know, impure material at the same time, uh, take on a kind of sacred character. So there's this relation then between the impure and the pure um, in relation to the sacred. Um, so the violence of fascism then, the threatened violence, the real violence of fascism, then is entirely compatible, he says, with the appearance in leaders of the sacred, of the leaders as sacred persons. So vile forms are entirely compatible with the sacred character. And I suppose I just want to finish it, um, leaving it as a kind of open question for everybody, really. Like today, what, where or what might we come to understand as the sacred? Precisely in this dual sense of the, the pure and the impure, um, you know, where on earth is this residing exactly? It's too easy, I think, to say, for example, that, you know, that Trump is fascism, as, as the, the left are want to do. This is not uh, an adequate or accurate uh, way of uh, understanding things. Uh, it, it tells you something about the fear of a certain kind of heterogeneity, can't say that word, but like Trump represents something outside, it's certainly true. Um, but outside what exactly? Outside the homogeneity of a certain kind of liberal order, right? But it's not even really about Trump, we could say. It's about something, uh, something else. And I suppose these kind of um, endless attempts to flatten out, let's say, the sacred in the form of, of laughter, you know, the, the kind of demonization of those who engage in forms of transgressive behavior, 
you know, these are all incredibly relevant um, questions today. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to leave it there on this question of whether heterogeneous uh, today uh, can be found. All right. Amazing. Thank you so much, Nina. That was so fascinating. So much to chew on there. It'll be a real pleasure to talk about this stuff with you over quite some time. I'm really, really quite interested in a lot of the theses you floated there. So we have a, a couple good questions I noted, I think two in particular, and uh, they're both directed to you, Nina, uh, which makes sense since you just gave the talk to kick things off. Um, one question is from Kashmir. This is coming from YouTube. And the question is, Ask Nina what artist or group of artists is the best incarnation or exemplification of Bataille's philosophy, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because he has this kind of relation to the surrealists, although he's, um, you know, I would say, you know, much more hardcore in a way than a lot of the surrealists. And Breton is very critical of, of Bataille. I mean, um, Hans Belmer does some really, really illust uh, interesting illustrations for the second version of the story of the eye. So he's friends with Masson, who does uh, some drawings. So Masson does the acephalic, the headless uh, image. Uh, so Masson is, is in that sense directly Bataillean, right? Because he's, you know, working with Bataille. Um, but I think Hans Belmer, uh, in a way, who does these kind of uh, very, uh, very disturbing, very graphic, very kind of multi-layered, illustrations for the story of the eye but also is famous i guess for the doll series which are very again extremely disturbing uh, in a way that um a lot of surrealism in its kind of oniric dreamlike associative dimensions doesn't quite get to the kind of horror of what bataille does but i think belma does more or less so yeah, I would say Belma for me, it's like the battalion artist. Excellent. It's a very thoughtful answer. Thanks for that, Nina. And another question from Mr. Oswald Spengler, a regular in my YouTube chat. <laughs> uh, um, it's an interesting question though. Uh, Nina, do you think Bataille was a Gnostic? Uh, in what, I mean, Gnostic, well, in what well, sense? Interpret it how you please. Oh God. Well, I, yeah, I mean, Gnostic. Hmm. But okay, I mean, one way we can think about Gnosticism, I mean, we live in a kind of Gnostic age, though. I mean, if you if you read Strauss and so on, we're surrounded by Gnostics. Um, I mm. I don't, well, one way of thinking about Gnosticism would be to say that there is a kind of um, a denigration of the body in a certain way and that there is kind of a truth that can be accessed only through a kind of very... Uh, I don't know, unpleasant and violent going through. Um, and I think in that sense, we live in an agnostic age. I I think Bataille is very interested in the kind of absolute polarities of the religious and the debauched, let's say, or the religious and the non-religious, um, or the sacred and the profane, you could say. But it's it's in a way how one is transmuted into the other, I mean, if you think about the mystical saints, I mean, Lacan will talk about uh, St. Teresa of Avila and the kind of orgasmic uh, st statue of Bernini and the, the way in which asceticism tips over into excess, into eroticism. Um, and, you know, some of the, the saints, there's actually a very interesting chapter on the female mystic and Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. I was just rereading. It's a very good chapter. Um, 
But a lot of the female mystics, you know, engage in these kind of uh, very uh, debased behavior. I mean, like kind of eating leprous sores and, and you know, um, uh, being nourished on the vomit of the ill and, uh, you know, touching these kind of diseased bodies in a way. And I think there's something that Bataille is very interested in in this moment of the whether 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 disgusting becomes sacred in a way. I mean, it's this kind of you know truly excessive religious, but kind of inverted religious moment. Um, so I don't know. I have to think more about this question of mm-hmm. the Nordic because I think it's it's the word is used also by me in different ways. So, but yeah, yeah. it's a good it's a good question. Sure. Well, thank well, thank you for providing some some of your uh, initial provisional comments on that. that. It's a question I'm kind of curious about too. I don't have a particularly compelling answer either, but it's something that I think we can talk much more about moving forward as we develop the course. So I think what we'll do now, according to game plan, I will talk for about 30 minutes. And if you have any questions, uh, I'll be also paying attention to the chat and we'll discuss them after. And also, if you want to return to anything that either of us brought up, there'll be time for discussion and comments after. So what I'd like to talk about is Bataille's political theory and character. I was initially just going to talk about Bataille's political theory, but then I added the words and character because it struck me that what comes down to us today that most people find so interesting and fascinating about Bataille has to do with his character. There's a kind of widespread image of of Bataille's character. Perhaps most infamously, if there's one anecdote that everyone knows about Bataille, if if you know anything about Bataille, it's the famous human sacrifice anecdote, right? Uh, The story goes that Bataille was a member of a secret society that was planning a human sacrifice. And then uh, everyone ends the story the same way with the famous line that they had no problem finding someone to be sacrificed, but they couldn't find someone to do the sacrificing. So this is these types of anecdotes uh, circulate uh, quite widely today. And I think they really color the interest that a lot of people have in Bataille. And so one thing I'm very interested in Bataille is, is basically trying to understand his biography and his character. Because when you actually start looking into it, some of this is, it's, some of it's debatable. Uh, for instance, this famous anecdote, is it even true? That's a question I'm going to return to at the end. Uh, it, it, you, you might be surprised by the actual uh, documentary record around these famous anecdotes. So I say that just to kind of motivate things because I think that's something that this is a story that I, that everyone's heard and whether or not it's even true is is, is a question that's, that's far from obvious. And, and I'll go over some of the scholarly debates at the end. Uh, but the reason that's a motivating, a motivating question for the talk that I'd like to give is that uh, Bataille's life was very intertwined with his thinking. This is this is a man who one of the reasons he is so extraordinary and profound and just kind of bizarre to us today. One of one of the reasons for his enduring fascination is that this is a man who took ideas very very seriously, uh, w- with a kind of uh, life or death seriousness in some sense. And so I think to get a full understanding of 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 what this guy really thought and what were the big ideas, we also have to. I have some sort of theory of his character. We need to have some sort of theory of who this guy really was. What was he really up to uh, as a life, as a man? And so that's why I combine these questions of Bataille's political theory and, and his political character. because so I think they're kind of two, side, two sides of the same coin. And so the plan or the roadmap for my talk is pretty much going to be a rapid fire tour through what I see as the main ideas in Bataille's work, or, or at least the main points that I'm interested in that kind of uh, define the portrait of Bataille that I'm most interested in. And the way that I see Bataille is, to give you a kind of foreshadowing, is that perhaps the the key underlying idea is this kind of critique of utilitarianism that he he develops, a a very kind of profound 
and and prescient critique of utilitarianism, which I think is actually all the more relevant today, where uh, kind of utilitarian norms and ethics, I think, are as fashionable as ever, uh, you know, with movements such as the rationalists that you might encounter on the internet or the effective altruists. So Bataille, I think, presents one of the most impressive and extraordinary critiques of utilitarianism. And I think it's really from that basis that uh, a lot of his other ideas flow, and especially his his political ideas. And in particular, it's this critique of utilitarianism that points to this concept of expenditure uh, that, that Bataille is very interested in. And he really develops what you could really call a kind of economic theory uh, of how, how expenditure works, and not just in human societies, but in systems uh, as such in some sense. And so I want to give you kind of the, the, the quick and dirty kind of cartoon characterization of that of that theory and how it flows from his critique of utilitarianism. But the reason that this is interesting and important to me personally is because all of this does flow into a rather remarkable political theory. I mean, Bataille is quite explicit in his political models. He actually does have a real political theory of how to change the world, of how to overthrow the of, of how to overthrow bourgeois uh, capitalism, if you will. And make no mistake about it, folks. I mean, he he was he did have a revolutionary political attitude throughout his life. Now he he. he Essentially, towards you know the second half of his life, uh, distances himself. He distances himself from all con- contemporary organized politics. Uh, he he eventually makes a clean break from the surrealists and makes a clean break from the left wing group souls that that kind of everyone at the time uh, in in that kind of milieu was a, a part of. He makes this radical clean break from all existing institutions. Essentially, uh, so at a certain point, he does completely let go of any kind of uh, bourgeois quotidian type of political activism. But he was, of course, always a uh, kind of fellow traveler of of the radical left in some ways, and he carries that spirit throughout his life. He certainly always uh, has an abiding uh, kind of hatred, I, I would say, for, for all that, for all that is, you know, for all that exists in some sense, for all of the rottenness and 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 and, and injustice, although injustice is perhaps an unnecessarily moralized word. In any event, I'm just clarifying or, or stating up front for you all that uh, this is a very, this is an essentially revolutionary man who was throughout his life interested in the question of how to essentially overthrow institutions from a very kind of uh, uh, sociologically kind of left wing uh, kind of background or context, I think it's fair to say, but perhaps that's, a, that's a, an interesting debate or discussion we could have later. In any event, I want to understand his political theory of revolution and really kind of break that down for you because uh, I think it, it's it's quite compelling. It's surprisingly explicit and surprisingly compelling, I think. So let's start with uh, breaking down this, his critique of utilitarianism. Frankly, it's quite simple, I think. I think he develops in a, in a way that's kind of uh, remarkable and, and, and unique. But the basic critique, I think, is very simple and very compelling. Uh, the, he says it pretty clearly at the beginning of the essay, The Notion of Expenditure. He basically says, if I'm reading him correctly, he says that the utilitarianism is essentially a kind of uh, self-defacing or self-defeating uh, philosophy because you can't justify a utilitarian gr- philosophy on utilitarian grounds. He basically says, whenever you see people kind of espousing a utilitarian philosophy, there's always some kind of categorical principle hiding behind it, usually unarticulated and never quite fully justified. So he kind of starts in my reading of Bataille, but he starts with uh, just this basic uh, logical problem of of utilitarianism. It, it, you can't really justify anything in human life with a kind of ends-based 
uh, or consequentialist or utilitarianist uh, kind of attitude. I, I'm guessing I don't need to go over this for you all. The basic idea of utilitarianism is quite simple, right? It's basically, you know, uh, there are different versions of it, right? But the simple version is essentially maximizing, maximizing welfare, minimizing suffering. And then there are different versions of that. And basically what he says is that at, at some ultimate level, this doesn't, this simply doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And it's essentially a, a logical critique. And, and I think he's, I think he's absolutely right. You, you, you can't justify a utilitarian philosophy without recourse to something that's essentially non-utilitarian. Uh, he cites the concepts of duty or honor, for instance. Uh, there's always kind of lurking behind a utilitarian philosophy, some kind of essentially categorical imperative or principle. And so therefore all utilitarianism, and by the way, if it's not obvious, utilitarianism is kind of the defining sensibility of, of modern Western uh, society, really. It is the conventional wisdom. It is the conventional ethical wisdom, I would say, without a doubt. And so that's really what he's what he's gunning for here. And so uh, what he says is this basically doesn't add up. You can also get to this, by the way, folks, through analytical philosophy, right? This is, in, in a sense, this is also, this is Gödel, right? This is the incompleteness theorem. In some sense, uh, philosophies uh, can be complete, but they they often have a difficult time justifying themselves. There's always this kind of infinite regressive justification. So that's basically what he's seizing on. Uh, and so all utilitarianism essentially operates in this kind of bad faith uh, sphere where there's always some sort of unarticulated uh, principle or categorical imperative uh, that's non-utilitarian. And so if you take that as if you take that as the starting point, a kind of negative critique of of why utilitarianism, the dominant attitude, doesn't make sense. Well, then what he does is he goes on to explore. Well, what are the implications of this? Um, and so for our purposes, for instance, just to make this super concrete and, 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 and effective to people and, in thinking through even contemporary debates that you encounter on a daily basis, think about like the, the effective altruists, for instance, uh, many of whom I'm friends with, right. They, they will invoke utilitarianism to say all kinds of, uh, profound things like how we should minimize animal suffering and we should colonize the solar system or what have you. Uh, but then when you ask them, like, what is, what exactly is, uh, what exactly is the, the the utilitarian justification for utilitarianism? Uh, they seem to just kind of think that it's self-evidently good to increase the good or something like this. But uh, but but philosophically, they actually are relying on some sort of hidden uh, kind of categorical assumption. Okay, so um, one of the reasons I'm interested in Bataille, and one of the reasons I think you all should be interested in Bataille, is because he's really tackling head-on uh, some of the really dominant. Uh, uh, conventional wisdoms of the day. And even to this day, when I hang out with my effective altruist friends, I sometimes find it difficult to find the right words to attack them uh, and, to, and to cut the rug out, out from underneath them. And I, I, it's one of my wagers that I think Bataille is one of the most profound uh, uh, kind of set of resources for really grappling with the reign of utilitarianism today. So, that, so that's like basically one of the motivations here. And in any event, the upshot of this, the positive upshot of this critique of utilitarianism is that, well, essentially what Bataille says is that if there is any point to utility accumulation, it would have to be something like expenditure without reserve or essentially waste. Um, and notice that that's, that's peculiar. That's kind of contradictory, right? I said, if there is a point to a utility accumulation, in other words, a purpose, a utility, an end, if there is an end to this reign of ends, it would have to be this kind of uh, radical gesture of, of departing from utilitarianism, this, this gesture of waste. And so really what he's saying is that at the heart of being, there's this contradiction. There's this contradiction between usefulness and utility and uh, pure waste, expen what he calls expenditure without reserve. So in some sense, if there is any purpose to all of this work that we do, of all of the useful stuff that we try to produce in our lives, 
if there is technically any purpose, if you really want to be a consistent utilitarian in some sense, the implication is that the point is to waste. We we have this deep desire and drive and need for uh peer for for periods or activities that involve uh extraordinary and profound, useless, meaningless wastage. And he provides and explores many different examples. Uh, right. So it's easy to it's easy to think of things like um, religious sacrifices, whether they be animal sacrifices or human sacrifices, uh, but also one might even think of economic examples, right? He, he draws examples from throughout human an- anthropology. And even also you can think of examples at the system level in a more, in a more abstract sense, uh, in some ways systems, right? If you think of like pressure valves, right? Um, systems often have to quote unquote blow off steam. So there's this kind of deep underlying uh, kind of model that, that Bataille is really trying to get at, which I think he, he believes uh, kind of underlies both human societies, but also perhaps physical systems. So that's that's a bit speculative. I'm not sure he really fully uh, kind of adequately explains that or justifies that. But 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 those are the stakes. That, that's where he's pointed. Okay. And so, um, the the why does this matter, right? Well, let's kind of try to cash this. Let's try to cash this out a little bit. And I would say that the 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 positive upshot of this part of of his worldview is is this notion of the sacred, which now connects my talk a little bit with some of the themes that Nina was talking about. Uh, the sacred is the kind of positive byproduct, the kind of ripple in the social fabric that occurs as a result of expenditure without reserve, or what you could also just call for shorthand sacrifice. Okay. So, you know, to be clear, expenditure, waste, sacrifice, these are all more or less interchangeable. And what Bataille argues is that when we engage in this particular activity of expenditure without reserve, truly useless wastage, in other words, this is the mechanism that produces the sacred. Okay. So this is a social scientific argument. And for what it's worth, it's this is essentially Durkheim. This is coming from Durkheim up through uh, Marcel Mo and uh, that, that that particular lineage that uh, Bataille, that was very influential at the time and that Bataille was uh, quite uh, well-schooled in. And and in the writings and in their conversations, uh, they, they were pretty explicit that this is essentially a kind of Durkheimian inheritance. Okay. And so now here's where this gets really interesting because we're not just in the land of critique anymore. We're in the land of actual sociological mechanisms. Bataille believed that uh, he, he kind of unlocked uh, something secret and special about how the world is held together, about how humans and communities are held together and how uh, community dynamics uh, arise and take off. And it, and there's something kind of specifically unique about this activity of sacrifice. Okay. And so this folks is the kind of th- theoretical background for the crazy stories you've heard about Bataille and uh, his crazy antics, most famously this, this idea of having a human sacrifice, which we'll get to in just a minute after we talk about what I think is uh, the even more interesting and, and, and for, for many of us here today, I think uh, more immediately uh, of interest, which is the question of, of, of politics and the question of, of in particular radical political change or, or revolutionary political change. And I think to me also, this is one of the highest stakes questions in all of this, because like Nina, I too am very interested in what exactly is going on today with the, uh, the, the inheritance of a of a radical left of a revolutionary left what happened to the revolutionary left i'm i'm very fascinated in this question by this question and it's and it's quite bizarre i'm not sure that anyone out there has a very satisfying answer to that question i think there's profound confusion about what 
what a what happened to the revolutionary left in the, in the course of the 20th century, but also from the ruins of contemporary confusion, what would a real revolutionary left look like? This is also a question that I'm very interested in. And I believe that in Bataille's kind of militantly uh, idiosyncratic, militantly kind of antisocial in a way, uh, kind of philosophizing and political theorizing, I, I do have this hunch that there, that there are profoundly useful and inspiring resources for precisely this question. Okay, so I want to sketch for you very briefly what Bataille's theory of revolution was, because it flows directly from this sociological mechanism that Bataille believes he kind of uncovered, uh, having to do with the production of the sacred through, through sacrifice. Essentially, Bataille is quite explicit. It's actually surprisingly concise and explicit for a, you know, kind of uh, quite abstract uh, and profound French philosopher. Bataille pretty much says that his mental model of revolutionary politics is essentially one in which small groups engage in expenditure without reserve or essentially sacrificial ritual. And because of the sociological mechanism of this type of sacrificial activity, because this produces the sacred in a sociological uh, kind of reliable predictive way, you can kind of predict and steer what happens in a way uh, because of this model that that we have. Bataille essentially thinks that small groups can bootstrap uh, kind of revolutionary dynamics across the social fabric through a kind of cultivated uh, production of ritualistic sacrifices. He's pretty explicit about that. I, I won't bore you with quotes at this point, although we can get into it later if you want to. And I think he's quite clear. I think it's hard to deny that that is essentially a, a model of, of political dynamics that Bataille believe, not only did he believe in abstractly, but he actually set about, he set about this goal. This, he actually tried to create groups and organizations that went about achieving this dynamic of revolutionary political upheaval through small groups engaging in the cultivation of, of ritualistic sacrificial activity or expenditure without reserve. Okay. So this is pretty crazy. This is all pretty crazy, right? This is, this is pretty insane and, and amazing for better or for worse. So um, that's essentially my uh, kind of in a nutshell understanding or, or my portrait of, of Bataille and what I think are the, the key linchpins in his philosophy and how they connect together. And it's also a bit of why I'm so interested in him and why I think doing a course on Bataille is likely to be extremely rewarding for, for many of us today. And so what I want to close with is just a bit of a discussion on what I promised at the beginning, which is a, a little bit of a reflection on, on who this man was exactly, what exactly his character was. And up until now, I've been, I think, quite favorable towards Bataille. I, I hope it's obvious that I, I admire this man's thinking tremendously. And I, I admire his his extraordinary commitment to live out consistently uh, the, the what what the results of philosophy uh, was telling him to live out. An absolutely extraordinary man and philosopher in, in this regard. Uh, but I do think it's interesting to, to also be honest and, and perhaps a little bit more critical about what I think maybe are some bigger questions in Bataille's life. Um, he has a very popular, I would say, image, uh, especially on the internet today. People who are, you know, people in my circles who are interested in Bataille, I would say he's kind of, uh, he's a bit sexy and fashionable be because he's seen as this kind of um, really kind of crazy, radical, militant, nihilistic type of, of, of badass in some ways. And 
while I want to retain some of that image, in many ways, as I said, he's 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 very admirable and uh, and truly unique. And and yes, I think it's clear how much I admire him in some regards. In other ways, I think there has yet to be fully applied a a a critical and skeptical lens to this guy's life and to his project. And so I don't want to be just a Bataille cheerleader. And I want to connect what I've said up until now to a, a short reflection on 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 his life and. And I want to do that by zeroing in on this particular anecdote that most of you have heard of, this idea that he was a member of a secret society that was going to conduct a human sacrifice. So I want to start by putting out a, a, provo a provocation, which, which is that this is not totally true. When you actually go over the documentary evidence, interestingly, there was a, uh, a book put out not too long ago, a new book of papers collected um, from this group was called uh, the Asafale. Nina mentioned it before. Uh, it is true that that Bataille was a member of a small secret society uh, known as Asifale, and they did engage in uh, rather bizarre ritualistic activities. This is well documented. There's a lot of evidence for this. They would go, for instance, into the forests of Marley and other uh, places with historical mystical significance in France, uh, and they would they would go in small groups in the middle of the night, and they would engage in uh, quite bizarre activities. Often there were daggers involved. Often there was cutting and bloodletting involved. Um, um, so there is some truth to the fact that he was indeed part of a secret society. They were indeed trying to put into practice, essentially, Bataille's theories of the sacred, not just Bataille's theories of the sacred, but also theories that he developed with his colleagues in the Collège de Sociologie, uh, like uh, uh, Roger Calois, for instance, and uh, Michel Liris, uh, chiefly, a few others also. So this is real. All of that is real. All of that happened, and it's well-documented. The anecdote about... Uh, the 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 supposed human sacrifice the documentary evidence is quite weak so i don't want to ruin all of your days by uh you know kind of uh, deflating this this bizarre and mysterious kind of tantalizing uh image but when you actually look over it uh it's not clear that they were ever anywhere near do, near doing a human sacrifice really all of the evidence there's really only one or two uh written explicit testimonies and if I recall correctly, they all come from uh, Roger Calois. And by the way, uh, Calois was essentially cr uh, at the end he was critical and essentially made a made a split with with Bataille. So the and and another thing to keep in mind is that the years of of Asafale and and the college it was very short lived. It was only a few years. Okay, so um, somewhat heretically, I want to propose to you a somewhat deflating image in which when you actually look at the evidence. I'm of the opinion personally, and maybe Nina disagrees. I, this would be a fascinating debate if Nina has a different perspective on it. But I ultimately see Bataille's experiments with the mystical as essentially a kind of ridiculous LARPing, to be perfectly frank. I think he was a very, very disturbed man. And that doesn't that doesn't in any way invalidate his his, his uh, fascinating, brilliant ideas in any way. I wouldn't say that it invalidates anything he thinks or says. Uh, but But I do believe that he was, if you look at him psychologically, if you look at his biography, he was a deeply disturbed and quite sick man, I think, in many ways. And so I don't want to be, you know, the wet blanket or something, but I do think it's worth throwing that on the agenda. I think, uh, you know, especially if we're going to be talking about this and really going in, into it over time, I think we should be, uh, we should just be kind of explicit and empirical about that. And when you look at all of the, you know, the, the mystical ritualistic practices, personally, I think that these are, these are, you know, a somewhat over-enthusiastic group of theorists who got a little uh, carried away with themselves, a little perhaps... Uh, impressed by their own kind of emo goth uh, fascinations. 
And I essentially see the, 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 the ritualistic practices as essentially a kind of ridiculous LARP. Uh, there's no evidence that they were anywhere near doing a human sacrifice. That anecdote just kind of got spread by someone who essentially uh, was, was ultimately critical and rejected the group anyway. Um, and, and in fact, in the 2018 book, by the way, which is it's recent, right? It's not that long ago. Um, uh, the, the editors, uh, uh, Galetti was one, Marina Galetti was one of the editors of the names I remember. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty impressive book. It's extremely comprehensive. Uh, I think, uh, they, they tried to get their hands on everything they possibly could, and they could not find a single mention of any human sacrifice in any of the, the written documents in the archive. And, and they did write about other, you know, kind of sketchy stuff, right? So it's not like they were systematically hiding these sorts of things. So, um, that's my that's my somewhat deflating and and perhaps provocative uh, addition to the end of my talk here, which is that um, I personally don't put too much stock into the anecdotes you hear about Bataille's life. Uh, I think it's somewhere between uh, deeply twisted and 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 mentally ill on in a, in a very serious way, and kind of ridiculous and trivial and short lived and not really not really real. Um, so. Yeah, this, that's my kind of picture of Bataille's political theory and his political character. And well, I'm, I'm, I'm quite bullish on his theory of revolution. And I think there's, there's something real there that I think anyone interested in kind of significant political change today would do well to study. I think, that, I think that's very legit. And the kind of sociology behind it is very legit. Um, the stuff about, you know, ritualistic self-sacrifice, I'm a little less bullish on that personally. But I would love to hear what everyone else thinks. And I, I would particularly love to hear what Nina thinks about any of that. So I think I'll cut myself off there since there's no one else to cut me off. And uh, Nina's too polite. She would never, she would never. Uh, so now if anyone has any questions, you can ask them now, or I will go back over and, and have a quick review. And if I find any, then I will suggest them. Or if Nina noticed any and she wants to kick things off, she's more than welcome to. Uh, Nina, you got anything or should yeah, I go I through mean, that? I, yeah, maybe just a couple of things. I mean, I Please. suppose my point of view, I, I'm not particularly interested in judging a life like anybody's life i'm not particularly interested in bataille's biography in a certain way mm. uh, i mean it's interesting to read the syria and to think about you know his, his his life in that way but i don't know i think i i, I suppose for me the point about the the question of the human sacrifice is simply uh, one of like extremes in a certain way i mean it's, it's a possibility you know i mean in a way we live in a world in which human sacrifice is absolutely uh mass uh, produced. I mean, you know, the the kind of sacrifice of bodies in labour, in work. You know, people who are kind of uh, expendable, who is seen as expendable, and who isn't. I mean, it's you know, the question of human sacrifice. We live in a human sacrifice economy, right? So, I it's it's it's. I I think the kind of mm. moralising the question of whether this secret group did or didn't is is not very interesting. I mean, it's it's interesting insofar as it's reflective of the kind of broader question of sacrifice. Uh, and so on. Um, sure. And uh, I would just briefly say, I agree with you that I'm not interested in judging a life that that's none of my business. It's more, but it's more because I am perhaps a little bit more than you need. You need, I'm, I am, I am perhaps more interested in extracting uh, political mechanism knowledge or, or, or more concrete kind of ethical upshots because I'm interested in extracting political mechanisms or ethical upshots. I need to be a little bit more explicit and aware of pitfalls. I am too, in a way, but I think the question of the ritual and the sacrifice, I mean, is is the political question. I mean, like the, the problem with sovereigns or sovereignty today is that they don't engage in forms of mass excessive expenditure. I mean, that's the point about the excess. It's like the sovereign is the one who then, like, burns everything and has so, to destroy everything. 
Okay, so here's a crazy idea. I actually think that elites are engaged in extraordinary expenditures and excess. And I think that's essentially what we're learning about the Epstein scandal. I kid you not. I'm not just trying to be provocative. I actually do think that that in elite circles, there is a kind of uh, mass secret uh, cultivation of, uh, of, of extraordinary excess. And I think it's somewhat self-conscious and it's, and it's in a Straussian way kind of hidden from the rest of society. I think that's, that's actually, there's a lot of evidence to actually believe that. Okay, I, I don't disagree in a certain way that there are these kind of secret rituals and so on. And, and But there is also a way in which those things also have to be posited for a certain understanding of society to work by most people. And this is why you have kind of extravagant conspiracy theories. I mean, Eyes Wide Shut is a very interesting film in this regard, you know, about Epstein. But I think the thing that's kind of maybe missing is the fact that these spectacles, these excessive forms of expenditure are not... Uh, public, you know, you, they're not the kind of festivals in which, you know, everything is topsy-turvy, the poor become rich, the rich become poor, they're not gigantic kind of festivals right. for everyone, you know, they're kind of secret society, private things, you know, p- with the rich are kind of hidden away and they, they kind of accumulate their wealth in, in these kind of abstract and virtual ways as opposed right. to, because it's no longer kind of physical in a certain sense, so you know, the, the question of sovereignty in, you know, becomes a kind of diffuse and difficult uh, question um, as right. well. I mean, when Walter Benjamin writes in 1921 about capitalism as religion, you know, he tries to suggest that capitalism is in a way a kind of horrible festival that goes on all the time. So as opposed to thinking of the idea that there's kind of work, grim work, and we get these brief moments of freedom, you know, like the weekend, um, you know, Benjamin says in, in the 20s that actually we're stuck in a horrible festival that we've forgotten is a festival, right? So mm. there's a kind of interesting way maybe you could think about Bataille and Benjamin on the question of like capitalism as religion. Like what is that, you know, when the when the festival and the rites and the ritual and the sacred have become so total that you kind of can't see them anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I see what you're saying. But what so what does that say for the kind of random oppressed individual in this homogenized system? Like what is, what is the implication? Well, I mean, I'm personally not against people like coming up with their own rituals. I mean, R.D. Lang talks about this, Lang and Cooper talk about this a lot in the sixties and seventies, actually. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I don't, I'm not against that either. I'm into ritual. I I don't think I, I wouldn't just kind of reduce interest in these things into like LARPing and this kind of thing. I think, you know, there's a, there's an erotics of play. There are kind of all kinds of things. I mean, of course, these things can be also like really cheesy as well. I have no doubt about it. I right. mean, like, I'm not defending furries, but, um, you know, I mean, this is a kind of telos of a certain kind of like, again, like a diffusion of, of kind of, I don't know, erotic energy and imagination. Um, yeah. 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 No, I want to be super clear. I'm not dismissing ritual whatsoever. I mean, I, I'm saying I essentially think that uh, Bataille's sociological theory of what of what holds people together and how to do that is essentially correct. So so therefore, I believe in what he's saying about ritual. My, But I do think it is crucial to pinpoint this difference and, and for us to try to figure out what this difference between LARPing and real ritual. Because for instance, like Kojev, for instance, says about Bataille, Kojev essentially agrees with my critique. Kojev says, uh, you know, I forget, I'll paraphrase him and probably butcher it, but he says something, something to the effect of, um, you know, Bataille and his buddies will no more uh, create rituals and bond themselves by the sacred any more than uh, a magician could actually fool himself about his own tricks. It, it, I, think that's a, I think that's a useful analogy, right? And so I, while I do think ritual, the mechanisms of ritual are real and they are available to us as human beings, there is a real problem in which 
many ways of trying to do it are flat out wrong and they're not going to work. They just don't work. And, and, and there is a real risk of LARPing. And I think there is a lot of LARPing around this type of thing. So I just think it's, it should be a, a productive challenge for us to really try to distinguish the LARP from the real. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, sorry, we can talk about whatever. Um, did you notice any questions from the crowd that were interesting to you, Nina? Um, I'm finding it difficult to read the questions and think and speak because I'm not, uh, I didn't grow up with the internet. So I, yeah, no, I'm no, don't worry about it. I was just crazy. curious if you saw anything. So what we should probably do then, you and I, uh, and I'll be monitoring for questions, uh, is maybe you and I should tr just try to live kind of uh, ask each other, where does this leave us? You know, where does your, because this is the first time I heard you talk at length about Pattaya. It's the first time you've heard me talk at length about Pattaya. Uh, so um, what do you think, uh, what do you, what do you see as the promising points of, of kind of mutual uh, research? Well, I, th I think where we're ending up, I mean, I think this question of like, you know, where the heterogeneous lies for me, um, you know, the question of the sacred, the question of sovereignty, um, I mean, the question of ritual, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think when Bataille and others talk about sociology, it's it's not in the way that we think about it today in that way, you know, like when, so in the psychological um, structure of fascism essay, this is a really serious attempt to kind of get behind the propaganda, get behind, you know, both left and right, in a way, thinking to something right. deeper about these kind of libidinal structures, let's say, uh, of a kind of mass magic, of a kind of uh, mass, uh, mass hypnosis, these questions of energy about, you know, these sacred figures that are also at the same time kind of invoking violence, the question of purity, the question of the dirty, you know, like these, these are kind of questions that philosophy isn't asking, but nor is politics exactly either, you know, and which puts Bataille in a very interesting position vis-a-vis, -vis, let's say, the socialists who have like a line on how to oppose fascism. Right. You know, so I think I'm, I'm interested in that kind of, I don't know, like deep sociology, like the sociology that, that taps into these sorts of like darker forces, let's say, and tries to understand them. Yeah. I mean, I would love to I would love to be convinced. I would love to understand or be convinced of a of a more deep kind of uh, kind of uh, ritualistic, paganistic type of attitude that you might be bringing to the table more, Nina. Like, I would love to hear about, like, tell me about dark rituals that 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 are not LARPing and, and how to do it and how to not be a LARP. Right. I'm, I'm very I'm very interested. I'm not going to talk about that here. So is it, so let's talk about secrecy then. Is secrecy what's at stake here? Is there, are there things that cannot be said? And, yeah. and that's part of what's going on here. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about the relation between the esoteric and the exoteric, I mean, Asifal is an esoteric, exoteric model. You know, you have to, I mean, the secret, the point about the secret society is that it's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure. it's like, and, and, but there, I suppose the question would be, are there kind of bonds and forms of loyalty that one can entertain with a few select other people. I mean, I'm very, very interested in the question of loyalty. I think yeah. the question of loyalty has been completely abandoned by the left. Uh, mm. It doesn't even understand the question of friendship, let alone comradeship, um, because it has a kind of public and exoteric uh, model of these things and doesn't even live up to them anyway. But I think the esoteric, the question of loyalty and bonds, that one can, what one can do with forms of trust, whether it's in the philosophical dialogue, let's say, you know, one can speak about anything in a certain way within the kind of remit of a, a secrecy between two and then the question of the group and what the group is kind of able to entertain um, both kind of practically and theoretically 
I, th I think you know those forms of uh, yeah, this question of, of of trust and secrecy. I'm yeah, I'm very very interested in. Right now, so am I. I'm very interested in this also. And you mentioned earlier uh, Strauss, I believe. Did you yeah. not? Yeah. So 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 would you would you possibly try to draw some kind of connection there? Like where do you where where do you think Bataille does Bataille come down in this kind of Straussian line? Is 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 the kind of uh, Bataillean uh, esotericism uh, similar to a kind of Straussian line, or how does it diverge? Uh, I don't know. I would not really know how to to answer that question. I think um, I I read the Straussians today, but um, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, their ana their analysis of things is often very convincing, and it's often outside of like very mainstream or liberal, both left and right analyses. Um, I don't know. I would have to think more about Strauss, also on the question of the, the Gnostic as well. Yeah. No, it's it's a it's a very thorny question. I think if we could make even an iota of progress on that, it would be it'd be quite uh, it'd be quite an achievement. Because I, I I think you probably know enough about me to know that I philosophically I I I'm quite aligned with uh, traditions of transparency of of radical transparency, and so there there's certainly and and I know that this is something you're interested in. Also, obviously you're you you speak your mind and and you uh, you are someone who is unwilling to play certain games of, of politeness and, and, and fakery. Uh, so in some ways you're in some ways you practice an ethic of kind of radical public uh, transparency and letting the chips fall where they may. So one, many people would look at that and say, Oh, well, that's like the, that's the opposite of a kind of Straussian or, or esoteric type of, of, of play. And I'm certain, so I'm certainly, I, I see myself as quite convinced of a kind of anti-Straussian or ex radically exoteric Kind of political ethics, uh, especially from, uh, especially if what you're interested in is uh, profound kind of social change. Um, so that's certainly where my priors are, and where my kind of philosophical and and and, and in some ways scientific inheritance comes from. Um, and I know you share some of that, but I think you are much more interested in the esoteric than I am. So I, I think it would just be, I, I'd be very curious to know um, how you how you balance those two, or where you draw the line between those two. Yeah, I mean, I am interested in a certain kind of like radical honesty and a certain publicness insofar as it, you know, I think, um, I don't know, there's a way of living a life like that, um, that is kind of interesting also as a literary project. Um, yeah, and also kind of the question of pedagogy and conveying ideas, you know, I'm very interested in, in this, um, obviously. But I, I suppose the esoteric to me, if it means anything, is is it? in relation to Bataille is a kind of experiential question, right? It might not be communicable because it's something that is a kind of process or, a, you know, something that one has to live through. It's not, it's not simply something that someone tells you about, or it's something you read, mm. you know, that, that it's esoteric quality is something to do with its experiential quality, which is right. what, what might align it with, with Bataille in a certain way. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. I need to think about that. There's a question here from Cleo, uh, Nina. Uh, could you say more about Rene Guénon and the quantitative qualitative distinction? Yeah, I mean, so this kind of relates to um, a way of thinking about the modern world and homogeneity and those kind of questions we were talking about um, before. I mean, simply to say, you know, Guénon says in the way we live in like the regime of quantity, which is in a, in a sense, kind of an unavoidable <laughs> conclusion in the sense of like everything is kind of measurable, exchangeable, 
you know, the moment you have a certain kind of um, calculative modernity, um, you know, and, it, and maybe this does relate to the experiential and the esoteric then in a way, because the qualitative is in a way that which cannot be exchanged, you know, in, in, okay, we can reduce everything, we can swap everything, you can pay for anything, right, you can pay for sex, you can pay for being touched, you can pay for, uh, I don't know, almost basically everything, right? Mm. is exchangeable for for a sum um but this doesn't kind of explain like the i don't know the very kind of um vivid and perhaps poetic and real dimension of existence which is uh which is the qualitative um i don't know i I'll have to i'm gonna have to think more about the relationship between Gwenon and bataille um, yeah well i mean one thing I, I would say very briefly is that uh, Bataille, Bataille and Co. were very interested in this this idea that they called the sacred sociology, and it was essentially yeah. a kind of they were essentially trying to synthesize the qua- the quantitative and the qualitative. Um, th- that that is essentially, I think, what is at stake because they were trying to essentially identify this the the sociological scientific mechanisms for the production of 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 qualitative ruptures of of experiential uh, uh, heterogeneous uh, uh, kind of departures, and uh, yeah, so so. I would just put that on the agenda to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So I don't know. I feel like maybe, Nina, we covered a lot of ground. I think we both spoke at great length. I think if we wanted to, we could, um, we could wrap this up. Here's a nice uh, little comment from David Roden, uh, who I'm sure, you know, uh, Nina, I'm just going to read it out loud. Nina, David says, Nina's observations about loyalty and friendship, a fascinating and maybe connect are fascinating and maybe connect with Justin's LARPing claim. Friendship is an ethical relation to a singular individual. In eroticism, for example, friendship might involve practices, e.g. sadomasochism, which can be seen as unacceptable or immoral outside that relationship. This needn't be ritualistic, although it might, but perhaps be both ethical and incommensurable in the way that some identify with the heterogeneous. Right. So, so something about loyalty and friendship are perhaps the criteria that distinguish LARPing from true uh, ritualistic activity or sacrificial activity. Um, yeah, thank you for that, David. It's a good point. I mean, one thing I would add to that is, you know, there's this idea that comes out of Diogenes. Well, it comes out of diagnoses of Diogenes, namely uh, in Foucault's book on on the courage of truth. There's this idea of, uh, oh, and Nina, uh, Nina's heard me talk about this before, this concept of presia, uh, of frank speech, of, of political frank speech, a kind of radical laying bare of saying everything in a, in a kind of reckless way. Um, this, this concept of presia, as Foucault notes, has certain uh, criteria. Um, and I'd have to return to the book because, because I don't recall offhand, but he talks also in that book about friendship. And um, there's something about the friendship bond that has something to do with this, with this kind of presiastic gesture, um, and I would hazard, I would hazard a guess or hazard a paraphrase if I recall correctly. It's something to the effect of when you, when you engage. Well, first of all, it's kind of interesting to note. I maybe never even realized this explicitly, but it's coming to fruition now. That parisia is a kind of sacrificial activity. You're sacrificing yourself in some sense. So when you stick your neck out there and you say that which is taboo and you're quote unquote canceled, you essentially are. A, a small type of human sacrifice in some way, yeah. right? And in that in that ritualistic 
sacrificial activity, the bonds that you build or the friendships that you build, perhaps there is a kind of uniquely, there's something perhaps on the, on the dimension of the sacred there would be one hypothesis. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, John T. Titlady, who writes very interesting about cancel culture, talks about this in relation to the angelic and the kind of ascension of the of the cancelled one, because in a way you kind of are, are free of the, the worry of being cancelled, <laughs> amongst other things. And you, you kind of enter into a, like a, yeah, a realm of freedom, you know, but, but it is a kind of out of cost, um, exactly like the kind of sacrifice. And I mean, you know, I think someone mentioned uh, um, Girard in the in the comments. It's an obvious point of comparison, you know, connection on the question of uh, sacrifice. And I think we both thought a lot about Rene Girard, um, you know, and, and obviously Peter Thiel and other people in Silicon Valley also read Girard and think about the scapegoat. And, you know, we live in this world of these kind of bizarre online mechanisms, a kind of virtual sacrifice of people's names. You know, the can- cancellation is a kind of form of like a, you know, a, a virtual mobbing, right, as a way of holding groups together by sacrificing individual names that the people don't die exactly, but perhaps their reputations do, or they suffer for a short while. So it's a kind of like a, a massive virtual online kind of scapegoat mechanism, uh, mm. play, uh, for sure. Mm. Well, what do you think, Nina? I feel like we covered a lot of ground and that was really fun. I feel like that that was quite, quite exciting and enticing. We, we covered a lot of ground and uh, there's some very interesting commonalities, also some interesting and, and probably quite productive divergences. How do you feel? Do you think, should, should we wrap it up? Yeah, I'm fine with wrapping up. I think if we do a kind of bigger course, it would be good to do a kind of uh, systemic kind of chronological reading of particular texts so that people can like, we can read a text together and have like a lecture seminar. Because I, I think it was like quite general in a way, like just talking about oh. Absolutely. Yeah, this was just a first opening. It would be interesting to hear what people might be interested in. No, I know it's just the first idea. Yeah. But like, um, if what people would be kind of into, like to have a kind of collective, we could have an esoteric collective Batai reading group in which we could talk about anything. Well, in some way, in some ways, a good classroom is essentially a secret society, right? That's a, true. A, uh, like a really good graduate seminar, for instance, is essentially it has the vibe of a kind of uh, secret society. And, and, and so absolutely. I mean, I, I really actually quite relate to what you just said uh, on, on a somewhat literal level. Um, yeah. And, and I completely agree with you, Nina, that uh, one of the things you and I are going to do uh, between now and over the next couple of weeks is we're going to hammer out a syllabus. And yeah. uh, so for those of you listening or watching this now, this was Nina and I literally just improving. We just basically agreed to take some time to basically lay out some of our main initial ideas or initial uh, points of emphasis or hypotheses about Bataille and share them with each other for the first time, really, uh, with all of you to get some questions, get some feedback, and just get the conversation going, really. And now what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the books and we're going to chart out a syllabus, chart out a little reading list. And that will be kind of one of the defining documents of the course that we're going to launch in sometime around July. So yeah, we're going to, we're going to do this as a much more structured kind of uh, group research project in, in some ways. Yeah. So um, yeah, Nina, thank you so much for, for agreeing to do this whole adventure with me and for coming out today. No worries, Justin. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe and it would be even cooler if you left a review i'd appreciate that and yeah just to learn more about what i'm up to you can check out theotherlifenow.com that's all and i will see you around the internet